Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 11, Roots. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by Jeff Wise, aviation expert and MH370 expert. It's time for Episode 11, Jeff. Wow. Okay, Andy. <laughs> it's been a long road, and uh, we had a pretty big one last week, and so this one we're going to take a little bit of a different pace. Um, we're going to, I think, slow to maybe a little bit more of a casual pace here and talk about trying to set the table for really how we have the discussion. How do we talk about MH370 and why Why are you and me talking about this? Like, why should people listen to us in particular? Just on this, back in the first episode, which seems like a million years ago at this point, but we're going to get a little bit more granular today because we've said so much and I think that from here on out, we're, we're talking about the scientific method and why people make decisions about stuff. Uh, and the reason we're calling this episode Roots is because it's both about how the investigators decided uh, to choose their search area, but also the root of how we got here. So I think we should, I think we should lead a little bit with about how the authorities um, about the methodology of how the authorities decided to where to where to look for the plane in the southern Indian Ocean, and if that if that concept was um, flawed or based on purely on science or based on on, on, on being humans, you know that kind yeah. of stuff. No, that's a great that's a great point. Um, as the search for MH370 got underway, the, the the whole community of people looking for MH370 kind of fell into two camps. You had the authorities who had access to all the data and had access to really top-notch scientists who did this professionally. And then there was the rest of us, um, just amateurs, people who are interested in it, journalists, um, engineers, and scientists who have a lot of expertise, but not in that particular field. And everyone just was free to kind of pitch in and try to figure it out. And because it was such a democratic process, Everyone was able to come in, and there was like a real uh, variety in the amount of expertise that people brought. And a lot of people were not really familiar with the scientific method and how the scientific method works. And as I myself got very deeply involved in this, and I was running a website, and people were making contributions, and there was kind of, you know, fights and misunderstandings, and I had to block people who were <laughs> being too crazy, it really made me appreciate how contrary to human nature the scientific method is. And what I mean by that is, as people, we have a tendency to try to make sense of the world, and we see evidence, and we, and we form conclusions, and we have a real deep-seated tendency to grab onto those conclusions and hold onto them and almost feel about them like they're part of us. And so on my website, I was getting so many people who would say, oh, I have this gut feeling that like the, the, the co-pilot hijacked it and took it to the Maldives. And they would just, there was no, you know, there was no change in their mind after that. And people would get very, they would perseverate and just, and people can accuse me of perseverating. But the important thing to understand about the scientific method, I mean, we're going to get into more detail, like what was different about how the authorities did it versus how the amateurs did it. But the, the hard part about the scientific method is keeping your mind open. 
most people want to immediately try to find a solution. When when I t when people find out that I that I have investigated MH370, the first thing they want to know is, okay, where did it go? And I have to tell them, well, stop. It's not about finding the one answer. At this point, we're trying to understand what the evidence is, and and ask ourselves, what are the range of possibilities? We'll get into this in more detail, but. Um, you have to keep an open mind in a way that is contrary to human nature, really. And, yeah. Thing that, uh, a question that, that keeps coming back to me over and over as I share this with more people and more people uh, watch it and listen to it is they're like, who are you guys to tell us what happened to MH370? And I think that's a good question. I'm not a private investigator. I'm not a forensic psychologist. I'm not a pilot. I'm not a member of the intelligence community. Uh, you're a pilot, but you're, you're not any of those other things either. Uh, yeah. So what gives, us, what gives us the right to talk about this mystery? Why should anyone trust us? Why are we doing this in the first place? Right, so um, let's talk a little bit about who we are in the context of trying to understand how scientists grapple with a mystery like this and how the public uh, can can understand a mystery like this. And so, well, Andy, let me start just by asking you how you became interested in this topic and how you decided you you wanted to talk about it in a, in a forum like this. I So I became interested in this like a lot of people did. Um, I mean, first, you know, just watching it happen in real time, right? And then thinking, like, this doesn't feel right. But uh, then many years later, uh, watching the Netflix documentary that you were featured so prominently in. And it struck me that this is sort of uh, in my wheelhouse of things that I I can get into. So what some people don't know about me is my background in politics and in Washington, D.C. So most, you know, most people, at least in Milwaukee, know me as being the owner and the founder and the publisher of On Milwaukee, which is a daily online magazine and independent media company. And I've been doing that for 25 years. But before that, uh, I went to the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. I majored in international communications. And at the very end of my college experience, I worked at the White House in the Office of Communications. It's a, you know, the end of college, right? And they they paired me because they knew my journalism background and also my international affairs background. They put me in the Office of Communications in the Presidential Letters and Messages Office. So effectively, I was a ghostwriter for President Clinton in 1996. And that exposed me to um, an awful lot of uh, stuff that I didn't really understand about the process of government, right? Because President Clinton received, you know, keep in mind this was 1996, 10,000 pieces of mail a day. At the time, it was the the most mail a president ever received. It was pre-email a little bit, but it was, he got a lot of letters, and they, they had uh, 500 rotating form letters to reply to people. Obviously, oh the president gosh. was not... Um, you know, handwriting any of these messages back. Now, except, I guarantee you that people are going to ask this question <laughs> because go I ahead. just found out that there's a Clinton connection to this podcast. Yeah, so go ahead. did you kill Vince Foster? I didn't. I thought you were going to ask you me about Monica. Okay. I thought you were going to ask me about Monica Lewinsky. Um, that's usually <laughs> what everyone take, goes People to. don't care about Monica Lewinsky anymore. People okay, good, because I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but no, I didn't kill anyone. I didn't see anyone okay. die. Um, okay. But what I did see 
right. was that I was responsible, or our office was responsible for um, this correspondence, which was frequently very important stuff. I mean, sometimes it was the uh, 1996 Amateur Bowler of the Year congratulatory letter, but sometimes it was letters to um, Nigerian uh, peace activists. And uh, the reason I left because I went in very starry-eyed and, and excited about this, and a lot of my friends stayed there, and they, they continued their career in government at the White House and on Capitol Hill, where I also worked. But uh, the reason I left was because um, nothing substantial was, was coming from this. And, it was, and one of the staffers once pulled me aside and mm-hmm. said, after I'd, I'd written a letter to specifically these Nigerians, that I'd done all this investigation and research with uh, the State Department. And, you know, we had all the access in the world to talk to anyone. We were, we were at the White House. We could just, like, pick up the phone and call anyone yeah. say we're from the White nobody, House. Nobody doesn't take a call from the White House. No, it's amazing. It was, like, it was the most recognized I've ever been. And he, my letter got edited down into something just so uh, boilerplate. And one of the guys pulled me aside and said, Hey man, I know you're depressed about this, but I want to show you something. And because all the the letters, all the correspondence from the White House is a matter of public record, they had these binders full of all the correspondence from the last three presidents sitting there. So they had Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, all the mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, he opened it up to the letters to Nigerians. And basically, you know, these are pretty, three di- very different presidents politically, but all the correspondence was the same. And the guy said, right. this is just, you know, this is just how it works. I mean, you think these presidents are really different, but it's all about messaging and being consistent with the United States. So 22-year-old me said, yeah, that's it. I'm out. And I, I took some uh, White House letterhead for posterity. I didn't take very much of it. Yeah, I didn't take very much of it. I just took a couple sheets of it, and I moved to Milwaukee, and I, I pivoted to PR, and and then I didn't find any. Um, like my soul wasn't in it, so I, I knew my background in journalism um, could somehow come to to be helpful someday. So in 1998, I started on Milwaukee. And even though we are a lifestyle publication, an entertainment magazine, um, at the root of it, we're still a digital media company. And, uh, you know, we've built a million readers and, and amazing social and, you know, a profitable independent media company. But this stuff is still in my soul, right? So when we when we start talking about investigative journalism, we start talking about international affairs, we talk about... Um, all the stuff that we're discussing in this podcast, and obviously, you know, multimedia and podcasting is definitely in my soul. It 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 all kind of ties together for me. The opportunity to get together with you and and build out this product is an amazing opportunity, and it's it's not just a hobby for me. This is this is this is a business that we're building. Right. So, the the, the scientific process is a way that a community of people can pool their expertise and their different perspectives from a, from a wide variety of points of view and bring that expertise to focus on a single point if it's done correctly. And so you've had this experience as an entrepreneur, as a White House staffer, as somebody who's had formal training in political science. And you can bring that in. And it's very different from someone who maybe has gotten a PhD in engineering and is looking at things strictly from a physics, um, mathematical perspective. Yeah. You know, this is kind of the nexus of communications, of journalism, of technology, of media, and then the, the 
political side of it. And now, by comparison, Jeff, I don't know if everybody knows your background because it's not what you would, I mean, unless you look at your resume, people would not know where where you came from. I have kind of a strange background. Um, I grew up in suburban Massachusetts, and I was always interested in science. As I was kind of a geek. I was kind of a nerd. I was into D&D and all that. When I was 15, my parents moved to Tokyo. And so for the next 12 or 15 years, my life was very involved in Asia. And I went to Harvard, and I got a degree in biology, uh, working with some really world-class scientists. Um, my um, the, my advisor uh, on my major, uh, Richard Lewinton, was the partner of Stephen Jay Gould, who was quite famous. And they, t- they worked together and made various uh, theories about evolutionary biology. Um, and then I graduated. I was also involved in theater and the newspaper. And I was also in the literary society. And so I had a weird kind of STEM slash humanities uh, kind of background and I graduated from college I moved to New York and then I moved to Hong Kong and I became a journalist mostly specializing in adventure Um, I would go to all kind of exotic locations and I wound up writing about adventure like building igloos um, going um, fly fishing in Alaska my Alaska trips turned me on to bush flying um, and then bush flying got me interested in getting my own pilot's license Having my pilot's license, I started reading a lot of accident reports, and I started writing about airplane accidents. And Air France 447, which we've talked about numerous times in the podcast so far, was really, um, it kind of, uh, some of my writing on that went viral, and it um, sort of launched me into writing about MH370 ultimately. So... It was kind of a winding course, but it's given me a lot of different perspectives. And one, you know, which you and I have been talking about earlier was... At the time that MH370 disappeared, I was on a very different kind of story investigating um, tech entrepreneur John McAfee, who at the time was kind of a beloved Elon Musk kind of figure. He had, like, invented antivirus software, but then he'd kind of gone to the dark side, and it turned out he was a rapist and a murderer, but he was beloved, and he had a whole army of people who loved him and who hated me because I started writing critical articles, and then when I wrote critical articles, people would come forward and say, oh, I know this other bad thing he did. I wound up making a documentary that aired on Showtime in 2016 called Gringo, um, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. And so at the time MH370 was unfolding, I I had this other part of my life that was about tracking down a charming psychopath (laughs) and trying to show the world that this guy was not what he seemed and that his his army of followers who loved him had been really mislaid. So I, I came into MH370 with a much more paranoid mindset than I think your average, say, engineer. Yeah, um, that's a fascinating story, and, and I hope someday we can spend a lot of time talking about it. Today's not that day, yeah. um, but the, so this is a this is a pretty um, radical departure from um, being a, a science major at Harvard. Uh, obviously, you you must have found some value in in that kind of background and that kind of training to make your life as a journalist more successful. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a day in the life, I don't know, do you call yourself a freelance journalist or what? what okay. Cause uh, yeah, well, tell me, tell me about your life. Yeah. 
that having a wide variety of experiences does help you see things from an unusual perspective. And again, this gets back to the idea of like science should bring together eyeballs from lots of different angles and look at things in ways that like you might see something that somebody else doesn't. And what we're doing here today is in part trying to understand MH370, but also in part to try to repackage it into a way that is accessible to a wider public. Um, there's, there's a very small handful of people who truly understand this case in detail. And unfortunately, very few of them have any kind of background in entertainment or journalism like you and I do, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that we can sort of be a portal between these two worlds. And I wanted to ask you, speaking of being a portal, you were involved in a case that was, from our previous conversations, quite seminal to you in kind of how you think about journalism, right? Where there was a, a, a big case that got a lot of media attention called the making of a murderer. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that probably was the, the spark that after I saw the documentary, I was like, this feels very familiar. And, you know, so with On Milwaukee, uh, we actually have a national and an inter international audience, despite the fact that we're geographically, we're kind of hyper-local. And a couple of years ago, when the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer came out, um, that was something that we all remembered happening, the, the, um, the incarceration of Stephen Avery and his nephew, um, Brendan Dassey. But the thing is, because it took place in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which is about an hour north of us. As soon as we started writing about it on, on Milwaukee, our natural SEO, our natural um, pull by being that close to it but caused... people are just searching for you on Google or something? Well, they were searching for Making a Murder, and we had, we had just, I don't know, we just, like did a review of, of the show. We, maybe we were just the first to do it. It was like over Christmas time or something, and it just blew up. And we started seeing traffic and engagement like we had never seen before. We, I think that January, we had more traffic that month than we had in the whole year before. Wow. We had to rebuild our servers. We pulled our reporters off of projects they were doing just to go in on making a murderer. We published a book. We found ourselves um, being referred to as experts on national news and People magazine. And... It was fascinating, but we lost money on it. Mm. And the reason we lost money on it was because it was this viral sensation that we didn't anticipate uh, doing anything. It was like found traffic. It just like kind of dropped in our laps. And uh, I own a business, right? So we're, we're an advertising-driven business. And I think that what people don't really understand is that page views doesn't equal revenue. Uh, and sometimes it can actually cost you more to serve that much traffic when you're starting to, you know, get 185,000 visitors a day that you didn't anticipate. Um, so we always go back and look at this making a murderer phenomenon and think about, like, how would we have done it differently? And my answer is that we could have anticipated it and we could have run with it, right? So, so this mystery reminds me of that one insofar as it has international appeal. It's, uh, I mean, we we had a little glimpse of some of the Netflix stats on, on how well the show performed. We're watching our own analytics on this podcast, and it's growing. 
but it is a business plan. So, so my motivation is as a citizen of the world, obviously, to right. to participate in this, to to figure out what the international affairs ramifications are. I mean, it's no no secret at this point that your theory involves Russia, and that's a that's a very important thing. Um, so, I would love to to have a have a say in that, but it's Definitely. also a business plan. It's also a business plan, which is why we're right. selling sponsorship, which is why we're looking to monetize this thing. It's not just right. a hobby for me. Uh, your motivation is, is maybe a little bit different because you've been embedded in this for so long, and it would be great for you to, to, to find some closure on this, but this is also a business for you too, right, Jeff? Um, you know, I hesitate to say so because... One of the criticisms that has been leveled against me personally is that I am just in it for a buck, which, as I think I've said earlier, is yeah. sort of a risible idea because <laughs> probably I, lost some money. I, on this I, one. I, I, I'm not a journalist because it pays well. It pays terrible. And it's gotten so much worse. I actually was doing pretty well circa like 2007, 2008. Good. Those were good years. There was a financial crash and, 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 and basically digital started really eating print publications and the margins in journalism like really vanished. And I think one of the aspects of the sort of state of confusion that we're in about MH370 and about so much else that's really important is this infrastructure of the world vis-a-vis -vis how information is created and spread is changing constantly and usually for the worse. Um, and we've just had, we've just seen um, Elon Musk you know, take over Twitter because he s tweeted something while in a ketamine haze or something. Oh, is that and his excuse? Guy, I, I don't know if that's his excuse, uh, but that seems <laughs> to be what happened. I don't know. He okay. randomly kind of stumbled backwards into owning Twitter and then destroyed it and then took it apart. And now he's like, all his advertisers are leaving because he said anti-Semitic things. And he's, I, it's, it's t totally crazy. But let's not get too far afield. I mean, you asked me, is this my is this my like business? And maybe it will become a business. I mean, I, I guess it, at, at some point in my heart of hearts, the reason I get up out of bed in, in the morning is that I care about the world that I live in. I want the world that I live in to be a better place. I think that the only way that the world can become a better place is that people are able to perceive it clearly and so if I see something that needs clarification and I can somehow get the word out, then that will have a positive effect. I think it echoes back to what you were talking about when you were in the White House and you felt like you were getting up every morning and, and bright eyed and bushy tailed, but nothing was having any effect. It's funny I'm that you say that. trying to have yeah. an effect on the world. And this podcast with you, my partnership with you is my attempt for my life to have meaning. And if and I do. And a part of that is that if I feel like if I have something that's worth saying and people feel like it's worth hearing, then somehow that will add up to um, something that people will find valuable in the world. And somehow economically, that will make me able to pay my rent or my mortgage. Yeah, it's you know? funny and that you say that because it, it, at the White House, uh, Bill Clinton did say one thing to us uh, that stuck with me. He said that it's possible to do good and to do well. And. I've been thinking about that throughout my entire career, right? You can make an impact, and I, I couldn't make it there. I tried, but uh, you can make an impact. You can make the world a better place. You can do good work, and you can also do well. And I think it's true that journalism has absolutely changed, and the democratization of it vis-a-vis -vis social media has changed everything. Right. But it also gives us an opportunity to get in front of a whole lot more people and 
So even even if this is um, less of a business plan for you than it is for me, it is something that I, I I like the idea that we're trying it and seeing what happens with it. Yeah. And listen, you know, the, Andy, the journey the is a reward. Day, if at the end of the day we make something that not that many people see, but that the people who see it come away with a clearer understanding of this really baffling and important mystery, you know, that's not a failure. I'd be I want to put out there because if we don't do this, then then I say like this portal between these two worlds, the, the, the portal between people who understand what happened with this mystery and the world that's curious about it, that does not exist. There have been dozens, if not hundreds of documentaries and articles and books written about this mystery. 99.9% of them are by people who don't understand it. And, yeah. And what, so what, what I want to do for like the rest of this episode is talk about what we do understand about it and more specifically why we understand it. I think that's a really good transition. Okay. Um, because those those amateur scientists, they're, I mean, they're, they're filling a void because they didn't get what they wanted out of the official explanation. And we've seen that. I think the first instance I saw that was the 2012 uh, Boston Marathon bombing where they, they basically crowdsourced the search for the guys who did it. And I remember thinking that was, that was weird. But now you see that all the time, right? So the, this void jumps in and now you have all these amateur sleuths and stuff, but, right. but they don't know the scientific method. I don't know the scientific method. Maybe you know the scientific method, but <laughs> at least you can explain it to us because journalists do, that's what they do is they explain. So yeah, uh, yeah let's, let's, let's talk, let's, let's get detailed onto this. And, it has, and start going this into whole it. story has been an education for me in the scientific process. And so let's start with what most people think the scientific process is. I was just, I just went to my um, 10th graders uh, high school open house and his science teacher was explaining how these kids were learning about the scientific method. And she described it like this. You have a theory about a phenomenon or the world and then you conduct an experiment, and then you look at the results of the experiment, and it tells you if your hypothesis is wrong or not. And that's okay. That's great. It's like you have you go out into the world, you measure something, you have an idea, and you modify your belief based on the evidence that you find. That's true, and that's great. In the real world, it gets a little bit more complicated than that, because in the real world, when you gather information, you're not really sure what that information is telling you. You have error bars in your data, and there's maybe multiple different ways that that data could have been generated. And so instead of having one theory, you tend to have multiple hypotheses, all of which fit more or less with the available evidence, and then you try to collect more evidence to figure out which one is right. And this process that I'm describing um, has become developed in recent decades under a banner um, that I will call the Bayesian approach or Bayesian methods. And you'll hear Bayes' theorem bandied about a lot. It's, it's a very fundamental idea um, that, has, that really lies at the core of a sort of scientific revolution that's been taking place in recent decades um, in which um, scientists try to understand complex systems. So this is called complexity uh, science or system science. And it's looking at how Something as complex as the human brain or evolution itself um, can spontaneously arise from the interactions of many different agents and so forth. Um, and this is a is it, it, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is that as the scientists were looking at the data from MH370, 
they realized that the scientific method in the sort of 10th grade version was not going to give them what they needed, which was they needed to define an area to look in the southern seabed. So they have these, we've talked extensively in past episodes about the Inmarsat data, these two, the BFO data and the BTO data. And these, you can, what you can do in keeping with this, this simple version of the scientific method is come up with a hypothesis, draw a, a, a route on a map, and then see, does that fit the BTO and the BFO data? And, that's, and so what, what a lot of my colleagues in the independent group, and me too, I was doing this myself, I was drawing routes and I was testing how they fit with the data. And if they fit, I would put it on my blog. Or I would you know, post it somewhere else. And I would say, hey, everybody, I found a route that matched the Inmarsat data. But the, the, the crucial thing to understand about this approach is that you can test a proposed route against the, the Inmarsat data, but the Inmarsat data itself doesn't give you one route. There's multiple different scenarios, all of which fit more or less. And so when you have a crowdsource group like the independent group, everyone's just kind of pitching in and saying, this route works, this route works, and you get a whole kind of collection of routes, all of which are kind of mutually contradictory, but they sort of lie in the same general area. And so the, in, so the independent group said to the ATSB, hey, ATSB, you should go search the seabed here. We found all these good routes. That's pretty useful. Um, but that's but the scientists who do this for a living they understood that this is a that they, they there's a more um, methodical approach and this is the Bayesian method and let's talk about that a little bit because that's okay that, I, that's one I hadn't heard of until you started explaining it to me well so you know um, talking about probability we usually yeah. think of probability going forward so if I have a coin and I flip it. I, can, I have a 50% probability that it's going to be heads, 50% probability that it's tails. Um, and we, uh, but, what it, but, but with Bayes is a kind of reverse probability, which is a little bit harder to get your head around. So let me explain a little bit. I have some data. What is the universe of all the possible conditions that could have given rise to that data, right? And this is where, you, 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 uh, this is where it's different from 10th grade scientific method, where it's like you have the data and like you know what the data means and it tells you if your hypothesis is right or wrong. In the world of Bayes, everything's a little bit more hazy. There's multiple different ways that this data that you have could have been produced, right? A long time ago, maybe five or six episodes ago, we talked about Andy's bar and Jeff's bar. I love bar. that one. Yeah, that was a good one. So just to review people's memory, in Andy's bar, every beer is $5, always. And at Jeff's bar, you, um, you roll a die to see how many dollars you have to pay. And so there's a guy who goes to a bar and every night he has one beer. And at the end of his at, at the end of the month his wife looks at his credit card bill and it says 555555. Every day this guy's spending $5 on beer. And this is okay, this is a textbook example of Bayes' theorem. Bayes the Bayesian method of, or Bayesian analysis, which is okay, so what are the what are the different possibilities for how this data could have been generated? A 10th grader would say, well, um, this is Andy's method. This, this is Andy's bar. Because at Andy's bar, you always pay $5, and this guy always paid $5. But then a slightly brighter student might say, actually, yes, this does match Andy's bar. But it also matches Jeff's bar under certain conditions. You could go in, and he might just by luck have rolled a five every single time. 
So although it's very likely that this guy was hanging out at Andy's bar, we can't actually exclude that he was at Jeff's bar. So applying this to MH370, um, the scientists said, okay, what's the universe of all the possible routes that could have been flown that match the data that we have? And how do you do that? Well, what they did was they, they, they rigged up a computer to randomly generate thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands, just a, a, a tremendous number of routes that a plane could have flown, right? So it can't go supersonic, it can't go into space, it can't burrow sure. underground, it can fly the way that a plane flies. And then let's take a look and see which ones uh, match the data and which don't. And yeah, that's so that's how, they, that's how you get the heat map, right? That's that's how. So you then you get, get what's called a probability heat map. So it looks like yeah. it kind of look. We'll we'll put up a, a picture on the screen, but this yeah. is it. Kind of looks like a a fried egg, yeah. and so in the middle of it, this is the high probability. This is where if you take when you took all the universe of possible routes, most of them, the higher percentage of them go there. Some of them also go further out. And so that's how you can generate. And, and the thing about Bayesian analysis is that you're making, you have assumptions going in. Like, what are we, like, what are we allowing in terms of behavior? In the case of going to Jeff's bar, Andy's bar, like, we're assuming that the guy's only buying one beer, right? But actually, you could allow it that he could have he could roll twice. He could have two beers because if he goes to Jeff Bar and then he rolls a two and then he rolls a three, he's still only spending five dollars, right? And so, when it came to looking for MH three seventy, they said, "Is it going to? Is he just going to fly straight, which mostly pilots do? Or are we going to let him have one turn? Maybe he can have two turns. Maybe he can be you know turning continuously." And what they found is that the more freedom you allow this imaginary plane to have, the more kind of crazy possible routes you can fly. You can wind up all over the place. But the probability that any of these routes is going to match the BTO data goes way, 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 way down. So this so is a can... long way of explaining something, if I may just distill what you're saying, right? As okay. we have this, this yeah. black rectangle, right. which actual real scientists devised which yep. they they viewed as part of I'm looking at it they viewed as as the most probable place that the heat map would tell them to look and right. that's why in 2015 when Australian Deputy Prime Minister Warren Truss said the experts are telling us that there is a 97% possibility that it is in this area right given which the data lot, they which had is very high. yeah given the data that they had that that was not an outrageous statement and yet they didn't find that, a plane. They, okay, I mean, to, 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 you know, spoiler alert, the plane wasn't in that area. Right. So what I think we all do? know what that, yeah. So they figured, okay, if the universe of possible starting points is entirely encompassed by our um, imaginary starting points that we use for the Bayesian analysis, then it must be somewhere... So if you look at that 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 picture from the from this the report that I'm summarizing, you'll see that a little part of the scrambled egg lies outside of that box because the box like encompassed the best 97 percent, but it didn't. But there's three percent outside it. So what we can do is so if we want to get to 99 percent, we just have to draw the box a little bigger. If we want to get to 99 and a half percent, you have to get a little bit bigger still. And 
you will never get to 100%. Right. It gets vanishingly unlikely, but it never gets to zero. There's always a weird thing that could have happened that, you know, you, like I said, the, the, you, if you have enough freedom, you can do anything, but your pr probability just gets slow. So maybe this guy made seven turns and he made eight changes of speed and he wound it up in some other corner of the ocean. It's possible, but it's just really unlikely because why would anybody do any of this? If this guy, remember, the, 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 the sort of supposition is that this guy was trying to commit suicide by flying into the southern Indian Ocean. Why would he make a wiggly, you know, corkscrew path? Um, but but it's even possible. still, it's, it's still being considered in the search radius. There's a lot of squiggles that are involved in this fried right. egg, in this right. heat map, in this rectangular box. So these guys came out with a very robust and solid scientific approach, which they called Bayesian, the Bayesian method um, for finding MH370. And they basically said to the, um, the Australian search authorities, we think if you go to search this area, you will find it. And 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 elsewhere, other uh, members of the search team were like, we have champagne chilling in the fridge because they were like, we know we're going to find it. There was an Esquire article that ran around this time that really stuck with me. It was like, it was a profile of the searchers on the ships. And it was like, these are the guys who are going to find the plane. Everyone was con completely confident that the math was solid. Their methodology was solid. They basically knew where the plane went with a certain error bar, but they knew how big the error bar it was, and they were going to search inside the error bar, and they were going to find it. Um, you know, obviously, I stood apart from this. I had said there's actually another possibility that you have not included in your Bayesian method. And I yeah. said, listen, if there's a 97% chance that it's in this search area, what are the other three? And let's say, imagine like if there's a 1% chance that it's down there, but somewhere outside your box, a 1% chance that the data was somehow tampered with in a way that you don't really understand. And 1%, it's like X, it could be anything. It could be Godzilla, it could be a black hole, whatever. And so if you rule out the 97%, then the th it's one of the 3%. It's the 3% three, the 3 that you didn't even bother to think about before. Now all these weird, weird things come to the fore. Oh, boy. And so... But we're gonna. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves because we need to talk about the search. First of all, I think in a in maybe in the next episode, I want to talk about. Okay, so we've talked about where on the seventh arc the plane wound up. Now there's another thing. So that's where the plane was when it sent its last transmission. At the moment it sent its last transmission, it was presumably, for reasons we'll explain in the next episode, it was out of fuel, it was in a dive, and it was. Um, heading at great speed towards the ocean. So the question is, if those conditions apply, how far could it have gone beyond the seventh arc? So in this episode, we talked about where, like how long the search box needs to be, how far along the seventh arc could it have wound up? The next episode is how wide is that search box? How far could the plane have gotten from there? That together gives you the total search area that we've, talked, that we've been talking about. Okay, so so this this little aside of an episode, episode eleven, uh, talked about what we're going to talk about in the twelfth episode. So we're going to get right back into uh, into the. the I wouldn't the complex, say it's an aside. We talked stuff. about two things. I think one we talked yeah. about ourselves and our role in the scientific process and how the scientific process works. But then we then we sort of applied 
that insight to the specific question of the, of the search for MH370, which is okay. how do you decide where it went on the seventh That makes part. me feel a little bit better about it. I don't like to be that self-indulgent, but at the same time, I want I want people <laughs> no, to understand important. why we're who we are and why we're doing this. And, it's very and, relevant. Yeah, and listen, yeah. Andy, there's one more thing I want to say, which is about the scientific method, which is and then how contrary it is to human nature. If you read any kind of message boards, including my own blog, where people get to weigh in and, and add their two cents, there is a lot of good information that's being exchanged and a lot of good ideas that are um, being shared. But you also see a lot, a lot, a lot of angry emotion. And I don't think that's surprising to anybody on social media of any stripe. But the scientific method does not involve um, getting angry <laughs> at people. It doesn't matter if you, you should disagree with me. Um, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're fabricating evidence, if you're lying, if you're committing subterfuge, yeah, then that's bad and you need to be kind of kicked out of the, out of the room. But for the most part, different interpretations they might get people mad, but people should not get mad about ideas that are different from them. And that is, I think, one of the real education, uh, educational things I've, I've learned in this process. Yeah, for, for, all, the really for all the value of the um, amateur sleuths, um, it, is, it is pretty emotional. And you've got to have a thick skin to work on this case. It's... Well, but you know what? Get, to get back to the John McAfee case, I was so inundated with anger when I started to talk about some of the things that guy had been up to. He had, he had believers, and believers want to protect what they believe in. And so, you know, already in our comments, you know, you're seeing people saying like, oh, you're... you're <laughs> but actually, you know what? I have to say our comments in this particular iteration of, of trying to talk about this story, for me has been very, very positive. Like, people are really open to, like, I hearing think excellent. a careful explanation and take, just really taking it slowly and laying the, pa the, 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 the pavement step by step. So... Um, I think they've been so, great. I think and we've been replying to them and we've mm -hmm. been engaging and we've been taking uh, some tips on the flow of this thing and what to talk about. So I, I think the inter this is like kind of the good part of social media. Yeah. I think it's... it's it, and, and actually, I, that's probably a good housekeeping point. So in, you know, yeah. in the last week, we've expanded our distribution of this. Right. So in addition to the YouTube, the Apple Podcasts, the Facebook, our website, deepdivemh370.com, now we are syndicating this on pretty much all the platforms there are. So whether you're an iPhone user, an Android user, uh, whether you're watching this, uh, it's it's everywhere now. So I would expect we're going to get even more feedback. I hope it stays this positive. It's it, it's it's been great. I mean, it's it's really cool to to work on a project that engages people like this, and we're seeing the numbers go up and up. Well, I you know, and this I guess is a good place for me to say to anyone who's listening or watching now, please, you know, if you have questions, if you have comments, um, if you have ideas. I think we've said every episode that our intention is for this to be a community, for this to be a dialogue and exchange back and forth. We're not trying to just talk at you. We want people to understand. Um, and so it really helps us communicate if you let us know if we're communicating or not. Okay. I think we should leave it at that. Okay. I think there's a lot. <laughs> we just went through a lot again, and we yeah. do this every week. And now my head is going to be spinning for a little while while I think <laughs> about it and, uh, and start playing the next episode. But we're doing this every Thursday by hook or by crook. And we're recording them pretty close to the, the time that they, they're, they're published. So, so I guess this is um, going to come out on Thanksgiving. 
Yeah, that's a be this would be a good thing to watch around the dinner table or you know during halftime. Share. It's going to be a new Thanksgiving tradition: turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, and deep dive MH370. Share it with Absolutely. your loved ones. Yeah. So while you're while you're stuffing yourself full of turkey, like subscribe, join our mailing list. A family All that does things. Bayesian analysis together stays together. That would make for a lovely Thanksgiving apron, I think. I'm going to start crocheting that onto a... Um, yeah, let's a get working on that. Yeah, and when I'm done editing this, I'll start doing some uh, crocheting. Anyway, uh, Jeff, thanks. This was a really deep and insightful episode, and I enjoyed it. Thank you, Andy, and thank you to, to everyone out there. Uh, and we'll see you next time.